Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Good morning. It's Friday, the 3rd of November here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Coming up today, Sam Bankman-Fried has found guilty the founder of FTX convicted of massive fraud over the crypto exchange's collapse. Gaza City encircled. Israel's military offensive continues as the US Secretary of State meets with Benjamin Netanyahu today. BOE Blues traders bet on UK rate cuts after a bleak outlook from Andrew Bailey. Let's begin with a roundup of our top stories. Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty of fraud and conspiracy. It took jurors less than five hours to convict him on all seven charges relating to the collapse of the crypto exchange FTX. Prosecutors said that Bankman-Fried directed the transfer of FTX customer money into an affiliated hedge fund, Alameda Research, for other investments. Bloomberg's legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison was in the courtroom to see Bankman-Fried's reaction. He was pretty emotionless. Uh, He was asked to stand up um, by the judge when the jury um, delivered its verdict. Uh, He faced the the jury box. Um, He held his hands in front of him um, and it looked like he was staring down at the floor um, as the the foreperson to the jury um, confirmed guilty um, to each of the seven charges. He then sat back down. Uh, When the jury walked out of the room, he was whispering with his lawyers. Um, He was nodding a lot. Um, while he wasn't very emotional, his parents were. Uh, they were holding each other. Um, his dad um, doubled over at one point. That was Ava Benny Morrison, Bloomberg's legal reporter speaking. Well, Sam Bankman-Fried will be sentenced in March and could face a maximum sentence of 110 years in prison. His lawyer says he will consider an appeal. During the trial, prosecutors characterised Bankman-Fried as the mastermind of a scheme designed to make him, quote, the king of crypto. Bloomberg Businessweek's investigative reporter Zeke Foe wrote a book on FTX's crypto roller coaster. He told us Bankman-Fried struggled under cross-examination. When his own lawyer was questioning him, he had a lot to say. But when the prosecution had their turn to cross-examine, he suddenly didn't remember anything. And in one moment that was dramatic, I mean, especially for me, the prosecutor asked her, she asked him about the statement, there was more leeway. And he said, I don't remember saying anything like that. She whipped out a copy of my book, Number Go Up, and walked it over to him, like a hard copy, and was like, turn to page 224. Foe added that the conviction is the first in a wave of legal action against crypto companies. The sector now faces questions over its future and if the verdict is a reflection on the wider industry. 
Now, the Israeli military says that a ceasefire is, quote, not on the table ahead of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to the Middle East. Israeli troops encircled the north of the Gaza Strip as the death toll mounted. Blinken told reporters he wants to talk to Israel about better protecting civilians. We're determined that this conflict not spread and we'll be talking to both uh, the Israeli government and partners in the region uh, about what all of us are doing to prevent that from happening. The trip by America's top diplomat comes as House Republicans passed an Israel-only aid bill. President Biden has vowed to veto any aid plan that leaves off Ukraine. Apple has warned that revenue in the holiday quarter, usually its biggest of the year, will be about the same as last year. Wall Street had projected about 5% growth. The company's been trying to pull um, out of its longest sales slowdown in decades, including a deceleration in China. Principal analyst at Lopez Research, Maribel Lopez, says that there's no silver bullet. We do have Huawei coming on as competition. We do have a general slowdown in smartphone sales globally, uh, as we've seen also with the PC Mac business. Uh, And then we have some pricing effects, right? So when you put all these together with the currency, a slowdown in some of the consumer spending and a competitive environment, it's hard to point to any one specific thing that makes it difficult for Apple. They're actually facing multiple challenges at the same time. Lopez researchers Maribel Lopez there. Well, Apple reported revenue for the fourth quarter that fell to $89.5 billion, its fourth straight revenue decline. The tepid outlook also sent the stock down as much as 4.6% post-market. The Bank of England's gloomy economic forecast has traders betting on rate cuts. Ten-year guilt yields fell as much as 18 basis points after the governor's press conference, despite rates staying unchanged at five and a quarter percent. In an interview with Bloomberg, Governor Andrew Bailey pushed back against the market reaction. We still see the risks to inflation as being on the upside at the moment. And it's important not to, for that message not to get lost. If the market has taken from what we have published today a view that we are leaning towards more cuts, then I'm afraid I will lean against that. Despite that warning, the governor's forecast points to a flatlining economy in downgraded growth forecasts. The Bank of England now expects no growth in 2024 and acknowledged the growing hit from previous monetary tightening. And finally, Goldman Sachs has named 608 executives to the managing director rank. That's 5% fewer than the last raft of promotions, which was announced in 2021. The title is seen as a stepping stone to the firm's highest rank of partner. Goldman has suffered in recent quarters amid a deal-making slump and a costly failed effort to expand into consumer businesses. So, a spectacular fall. It's one of our key stories this morning. Sam Bankman-Fried, who was the face of crypto, the company he founded at just 25. FTX was valued at $32 billion early 2022. But then FTX and its affiliated hedge fund Alameda Research collapsed into bankruptcy last year. And now, after a month-long trial, he has been found guilty of seven counts of fraud and conspiracy. Joining us now to discuss this is our crypto report. Siddhartha Shukla. Siddhartha, good morning. Thanks for being with us. So the jury found him guilty of of these counts. Um, What did they conclude then from these uh, weeks of of the trial? What did they find him guilty of? Yes. So uh, after the month-long trial, the jury members reached a unanimous verdict and found 
Tam Bankman pleaded guilty on all seven counts, which included uh, charges like wire fraud and conspiracy to commit securities fraud and money laundering. Um, so, Sam Bankman-Fried, as we all know, had directed the transfer of FTX customer money into Alameda Research, which was uh, a hedge fund in which he owned 90% of the stake. Uh, and also, uh, the money from FTX customers was misappropriated for other risky investments, political donations, and also to like purchase uh, expensive real estate. Uh, for the company and for uh, him as well, yeah. Now, Sam Bankman-Fried gave evidence during this trial, seen as a high-risk strategy. Um, what was it that we heard from Sam Bankman-Fried when he spoke at this trial? So, during the course of the trial and even before that, Sam had insisted that it was the lack of proper risk hedging at Alameda that led to the collapse of uh, FTX and Alameda Whereas during the trial, we saw an overwhelming amount of evidence as well as the testimonies from uh, his colleagues showed that uh, the misappropriation of funds was to a great extent and it was deliberately done. So uh, I think Sam's argument that, you know, uh, the risk wasn't properly hedged uh, somewhat falls short of uh, against the evidence and testimonies uh, that we saw during the course of the last one month. Yeah. Do you think then that it tarnishes crypto overall? Because in some senses, you know, although this is a kind of very, um, well, relatively new and a kind of modern um, iteration in the financial markets, actually, the the trial was about kind of old fashioned fraud. So how wide does this go in terms of tarnishing crypto? I don't think this will tarnish crypto or the applications that are being built on crypto assets over the long term, as we have seen that after the rout of last year, uh, crypto assets have charted a strong rally in 2023. And also what we saw last year after the entire FTX thing unraveled was that it reinforces the ideas behind uh, applications built on crypto that you know you established trust through transparency. And we saw that after the collapse of FTX, a lot of customers had started to move their funds onto more decentralized exchanges uh, away from centralized counterparts like FTX and Binance. What about the what, where we go next with this process as well? What are the next stages in the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried that we need to be watching out for? I think uh, we'll get more clarity on Sam's sentencing in March next year. Uh, We're definitely going to keep an eye out on that because uh, as he's been found guilty on all seven counts, he is expected to spend a couple of decades in prison. Um, Also, uh, we will have to keep an eye out on what's going to be the verdict for uh, Caroline Ellison, Gary, and Nishad, uh, the three colleagues who played a crucial role in the verdict and uh, all three of them had pleaded guilty to the crime themselves as part of a cooperation deal with the prosecutors. So we'll have to see uh, what kind of sentencing they get as well. Uh, The criminal defense lawyers that we've spoken to till now, they suggest that all three of them will likely get no jail time or very little, but there's a good chance that they will be forced to return the money they made from fraud. 
and they'll also have to like pay restitution to the victims but we'll get more clarity on their sentencing i think only after uh, march next year Okay, Siddhartha Shukla, thank you so much for being with us this morning, Bloomberg's crypto reporter then. On, as we say, that spectacular fall and the uh, fraud trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, let's turn to the Middle East next. Israeli troops say they've encircled Gaza City, where authorities in Gaza say that more than 9,000 people have now died due to the war. That's according to Gaza's Hamas-controlled health ministry. Israel has intensified its ground offensive against Hamas there. The US Secretary of State is due to arrive in Israel this morning, and he's set to meet with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Let's get the latest now from Sylvia Westall, who's our Managing Editor for Economy and Government News in Russia, Africa and the Middle East. Sylvia, Great to have you with us on the programme. Um, what is, in terms of the situation in Gaza, UN Special Rapporteur is saying that time is running out to prevent genocide and humanitarian catastrophe. This as the fighting is getting worse. What do we know about what's happening in Gaza this morning? Well, overnight um, uh, ground operations from the Israeli military continued in northern Gaza and around Gaza City. Um, the uh, the military said it encircled Gaza City, which it says is the um, main base for for Hamas in Gaza. Uh, and there's been intense bombardment overnight. Uh, that's also according to the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They do daily updates. They said that in a roughly 24-hour hour period, 256 Palestinians were killed in Gaza. And that bringing you up to that toll that you mentioned earlier uh, from the uh, authorities uh, in Gaza um, which is run by Hamas. Um, and then we had two Israeli soldiers killed in Gaza on Thursday, and that brings a total number of soldiers killed since the start of ground operations up to 17. Um, in terms of the situation, it's a besieged uh, territory. Um, the UN has warned about um, the uh, difficulty of moving people from uh, hospitals and other facilities. Um, and uh, that's going to be something that's uh, high on the agenda, uh, the humanitarian situation, high on the agenda for um, Anthony Blinken as he arrives in in Israel shortly. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think that Blinken um, can say to Netanyahu? What do you think is going to perhaps emerge from from those meetings? I mean, we know that Blinken uh, was um, in Israel and the Middle East on, you know, a shuttle diplomacy mission only a few weeks ago. Now he returns. What might we expect from that meeting? Will there be another press conference, let's say? Well, I think the message that the US has been um, emphasising um, sort of in more detail and the broader idea is um, they've, they've been wanting to see what they term as a humanitarian pause. Um, so they haven't been using the word ceasefire, but the idea would be to have a pause in fighting to make sure um, more um, uh, medical evacuations can happen, uh, as well as seeing if uh, the hostages that are held by Hamas in Gaza, uh, the remaining hostages can be can be freed. Uh, there's been a trickle of people, um, a very small number of people that have been allowed to leave. Um, so that's something that um, Biden has has talked about ahead of this visit. And we would expect that uh, Blinken would also bring this up. Um, and, you know, it goes along with this broader theme of when Blinken was in Israel last time that uh, Israel has the right to defend itself, but how Israel does this matters. So it will be going deeper into that uh, now that the ground operations have started in Gaza. Sylvia, thinking about the the, the more regional view on this as well. There's been continued exchange of fire between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon as well. How How is the, 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 the situation playing out on, on Israel's northern border? 
That's right. I mean, something that everyone is watching very closely is is this northern border um, and uh, whether the conflict is really uh, spilling over into other parts of the Middle East. Uh, for some people, it started already. The spillovers already started to happen. Um, it has been quite intense. I think today um, uh, people will be looking quite closely to the expected speech by the uh, leader of Hezbollah, um, who is expected to speak um, uh, in the afternoon Beirut time today for a sense uh, of where um, of how Hezbollah might be um, uh, taking this forward um, and that, that's happening later on today and they'll be looking for clues uh, in terms of uh, what that means for the spread of the conflict or not. Yeah, absolutely. Former US National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster speaking to Bloomberg only yesterday talking about it being a regional war already. Um, a, uh, a last um, thought though then on, on what the discussion might be about how Gaza is actually run after the war. Is there any significant thinking about that, briefly, Sylvia? I mean, we reported um, uh, earlier this week that uh, the US and Israel are exploring options for the future of the Gaza Strip. Uh, that includes potentially the possibility of a multinational force that may involve American troops if Israeli forces succeed in ousting Hamas. Um, but, you know, these are very much theoretical conversations um, and the emphasis right now really is on what's happening on the ground. Um, yeah. And, you know, among people that, um, you know, would were discussing these plans, many are very sceptical about whether anything like this could possibly happen. But there are starting to be fledgling ideas and discussions about what could happen next. I think in the region itself, the view is that, you know, the only real solution for uh, this conflict is the original solution, which is a two-state solution. Um, but that's, you know, it's, it's a very difficult time right now. So I think that's what people are looking for right now. Okay, Sylvia Westall, thank you so much. Our Managing Editor for Economy and Government News in Russia, Africa and the Middle East. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, let's turn our attention to the Bank of England, which kept interest rates unchanged for a second consecutive meeting yesterday at five and a quarter percent. So in line with expectations, the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey, though, has pushed back against the market's reaction as he warned traders that it's much too early to be thinking about interest rate cuts. He's been speaking to Bloomberg's Guy Johnson about the central bank's decision to keep its benchmark on hold. Well, the message we're giving is that we have, you know, our, our job is to get inflation down to the 2% target. Now, we've made a lot of progress this year, and I believe we'll make more progress in the rest of this year, but we've still got a long way to go. So, you know, our very clear message is we think the policy is having a restrictive effect at the moment, but I'm afraid we're going to have to maintain this stance for what we describe as an extended period of time. Yeah. What, is, what is an extended period of time? Is that a year? Is well, that six months? How, how do you, we don't I, what, know how do you, so how do you what, make that language work? What, what I described, you know, we described in the report is, is really two, we took two approaches. One is to take the market curve yep. as it was you know, a week or so ago. And that delivers inflation coming back to target, you know, broadening on the sort of two year horizon. 
Uh, we also took, the, took a constant rate path, just maintaining it throughout the next yep. three years at, um, at the current rate. Brings it back a little bit quicker, but there's not much between them. So the, the key point here is, yeah, we're going to have to maintain this stance to be yep. absolutely assured that inflation is coming back to 2%. The point in there is, though, that the market forecast, which does have cuts priced into it, albeit it was a week ago and there was only one of them, yeah. it does have a cut price in. And that mm. gets you to a situation where you've got inflation basically back down to targets within two years. It significantly reduces the risk of a recession. Isn't that, therefore, the most probable outcome when it comes to the interest rate path, i.e. at least pricing in one well, cut during that horizon. Actually, no, neither of those two um, paths had a recession in them. What, what they both have is very subdued growth. That's because at, at, at the point when we did this... But a reduced risk of recession. Well, I mean, they, they are slightly reduced. There was only about 25 basis points difference between the two paths if you average it out over three years. So there's not much between these paths. And, and that supports the yep. story that we're saying, which is, look, we're going to have to maintain this stance you know, yep. for an extended period. To ensure why why have you felt though today that you've needed to reiterate that so strongly? The language is, is, a, is a little bit more hawkish. Well, I think for two reasons. One is because we still see the risks to inflation as being on the upside at the okay. moment. And it's important not to, for that message not to get lost. Yeah, and there are several reasons why we think the risks are on the upside, but they are still on the upside. Secondly, if you don't mind me saying so, because everybody's started to ask the question about cuts. <laughs> so, in a way, I think I have to, and we have to sort of lean against that and say, no, you know, we've got to maintain restrictive policy. Okay, let's come back to that. Everybody started to talk about cuts. The market has priced it, started to price yeah. cuts. You're saying you do need to therefore lean in on that. Well, I'm not leaning against the curve that we used the other, you know, when we did yeah. the forecast, because frankly, there, was, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of difference between those two views of the, the constant throughout and the market then. But any more than that? Would you want to lean in on that? The well, what I'm going to say to this, if, if the market has taken from what we have published today a view that we are leaning towards more cuts, then I'm afraid I will lean against that, yes. In terms of the other message that you may be giving today, and that may be a, a broader message, inflation expectations have probably come, become more de-anchored here than maybe elsewhere. Is there therefore a reason, a need, to reiterate that restrictive policy will be with us for longer, in order to make sure that you do that policy does re-anchor policy back to where you would like it to be? Do you need to make that message crystal clear at this point? I, I don't think that inflation expectations have become more de-anchored here, actually. I think we've all, all major central banks have had pretty similar experiences. And I think we're all having to give you know, variants of these messages because, frankly, yes, we've got to see uh, inflation come down. And, and there is a, you know, there, you're right in highlighting that there's an important link, obviously, between today's inflation, the expectations that people form, and therefore what inflation is going to be in the future. So yes. it's an important. Is the, is the pain worth the gain? Is that another? But, but do you need to reiterate that side of things as well? That, yes, we're going to have restricted policy, we are going to re anchor policy but it's going to be worth it. Well, I do, yeah, I do strongly believe that because I, I do say often, and, and it's important to say it, that of course, if we continue in a situation where inflation is, is above target, then that's going to be a worse outcome. Do you think we're heading for an environment where rates are, are higher for longer? Let's talk a little bit about the curve. I know you don't want to lean hmm. on the curve, but let's talk about the curve. The curve, over the, certainly since the last meeting, has steepened significantly at the long end. Got a bare steepening. Long end rates have come up, hmm. curves flat as a pancake. 
Why do you think that is, firstly? Jay Powell's talked about term premium. There's deficit pricing going in there. You talked in the introduction about maybe a higher R-star neutral rate. It could be stickier inflation. I, firstly, why do you think that has happened? What message is, is the long end of the curve sending? I think, I think there's one or two things that we're picking up from there. I do think that the higher for longer message has you know, been absorbed over this period that you're describing. So you go back to the summer, I think it's a fair, yep. a fair, a fair point to sort of start. I do think that the market has absorbed this from, from central banks in the plural, has, has absorbed this message uh, and it's got reflective in curves. I think there's a term premium element as well, as you rightly say. What I would say there is that there is a, there is a very large, what I would call sort of global element to that. Sure. Um, and in, in, interestingly, I think if you look at the UK and the Euro area together in yep. terms of, of, of curve movements, pretty similar yep. sorts of numbers. US, though, quite a lot bigger. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day, right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.